Hello guys, today I'm going to read chapter 25 of Shakespeare's Pride for Children. I had not the slightest notion of what I should do next. I could hardly return to the company after having taken Jamie Redsaw's side against herself. But I could not very well join Jamie Redsaw either. Even if I could have swallowed my scruples enough to take up with the thief, and if Jack would die, a murderer as well, I still had no way of knowing where he could be found. Though I was not thinking all that clearly, I realized I was probably not wise to stay where I was. Once the constable learned that I was Jamie Redsaw's son, he might decide to clap me in irons as an accessory, accessory to the crime, or possibly detain me as short of hostage, means of keeping my father from fleeing the scene. I wonder whether Jamie Redsaw would indeed leave town without knowing that what had become of me. Surely not, after I had risked my life on his behalf. Besides, he was on an empty stomach. That, wait. Hmm. He, he was, besides, he was wounded. How seriously, I did not know. He might require a surgeon to tend to cut on his arm. Heaven knew he had plenty of money now to pay for such services. The money itself might hold him here as well, at, la- at least for a time. There was a good deal of it, and all in small coins, too much for him to carry about comfortably, at least on foot. More likely, he would ha- <coughs> he would look around for a horse to ride before he went anywhere. These thoughts assured me a little and set me in motion. I had somewhere to begin looking for him anyway. When I when at least if I found him, perhaps I could somehow convince him to make a man. Though he might be impulsive, it was certain he was not a bad man at heart. If I told him how urgently the money was needed to aid Sander and the boys, I might persuade him to give it up, or at least some of it. If nothing else, I would surely be able to retrieve my mother's keepsake. But I was getting ahead of myself. My first task was to locate Jamie Redsaw. My most immediate concern was that if I guessed where <coughs> he was likely to be, where, then Mr. Armin would surely have done the same. Keeping to the back streets and sniffleways to avoid the Chamberlain's men and constables, I thought about a a few local physicians and surgeons. None had treated a man with a sword cut recently. Late in the day, I inquired at the town stall 
stable and was told that no one matching my description of Jimmy Redsaw had perched me so hired a mount. In hopes that he might yet do so, I had leave to I asked leave to lodge in a hayloft. The stable owner, a short, dandy like fellow, agreed to this. He even provided me with supper in the form of one of his wife's meat cheese pies. I would have offered to pay for it, but that I only had a bit more than a shilling left for my wages, and no notion of how long it might have to last me. The feeling of being all alone in the world was threatening to overwhelm me. To keep it at bay, I engaged the man in conversation, asking if the plague had been a problem hereabouts. He said that, God be thanked, only a few townfolk had contracted the contagion, and those had been immediately confined in a pet's house, thus preventing the spread of the disease. We went on to talk of other things, including the performance of two gentlemen the stable owner had taken in that afternoon, though I was thought it best not to reveal my connection with the company. I asked him how he had acquitted themselves in his career. Quite well, well, overall, he said. Not so good as the admirers men, who were here a month ago, mind you. Not near enough laughs my pace. I nodded and held my tongue with some effort. According to Mr. Shakespeare, all the world's a stage. It seemed to me rather that all the world was critic. I can't fault the acting, though, the stable owner went on. Particularly the fellow who played the main bloke, Portico, was it? Fortius, I said. That's the one. I liked his lady friend as well. I decided to remember uh, her name. Uh, I does remember her name. Julia, I said. So Pelvis for a part, of course. You saw the play too, then, she said. Hi, tell me what did you think of Sylvia, the other lady friend? Oh, she was good as well. Very natural. Though I was hardly high praise, though it was hardly high praise, I was gratified all the same. I had not been overwhelmed with affordable compliments on my acting lately. In truth, since we had set out on a tour several months earlier, I had begun to feel that my command of the character and my <coughs> romantary skill in the healing arts were of more consequence to the company than my ability as a player. Yet, with me gone and Jack out of the com- commission, for a good while, if indeed he lived, they would surely have trouble filling all the roles. I wonder whether he would miss me. 
I was certain Sam would, and equally certain that Sam probably would not be. The others would, I imagined, to be regretful, but I had no doubt that, being a plentiful man, they would not hesitate to fill my place for the first suitable candidate. I forced myself to think no more on the matter. I could not bear it. Jamie Redsaw did not turn up that evening, or the next morning either. It would be a waste of time, I was sure, to look for him in the real houses. But time was one thing I had to search for, uh, so, so I slumbered. Not surprisingly, no one had seen him since the previous afternoon. I slept in the stable again that night. When I woke up in the morning, it was with the certainty that Jack and Jamie Ritza, that it was certainly that Jamie Ritza had departed, and so I must ask. If I could not slave my conscience by helping remedy ills he had caused, I might at least return to London and do what I could to aid Sander, Teddy, Mr. Pope, and the boys. The stable stable owner pointed out the proper route, which led straight south. When you get to Channelton, he instructed me, turn east. That'll take you to Oxford and thence London. He also sent me off with a full stomach and another meat pie for road. As I got far as Upton before night fell, I slept once more in the stable loft and set out southward again in the morning. The miles went by slowly with no companions to talk to. But first at the old habit, I went over my lines in my head for the rules I was at least sure of. But after a time, I gave up on it. What was the use when I had so little hope of ever playing those parts again? I pull, I tried to pull myself out to bog of despair, into which I was slowly sinking by telling myself that perhaps it was better off this way. Perhaps I should think about finding a new career. There was no denying that acting was a tough and thankless profession. It was required so much hard work for so little return. It afforded not a groat's worth of a secularity or stability. One would easily see why the sharers disliked and discouraged gambling. The everyday existence of a player was gamble enough without adding to it. It occurred to me then that all these same things were true to life in general, yet folk were not ordinarily eager to abandon it in hopes of finding some better alternative. To my knowledge, there was but
without family or friends, I had only lately begun to learn about loyalty, so so I did not yet know all it entailed. I wished to be faithful to my father, but it had but if he had committed a crime, I was not sure I still owned him any loyalty. Besides, what about my obligation to the Timberlands then? In hierarchy of loyalties, which came first, family or friends? Though I knew little about demands of honor or of duty, I was well acquainted with demands of body and <clears throat> unprecipled as it may seem. These were at finally swayed for me. If the company should took me that, it would at least have destined food, fill my stomach, and a soft place to lay my head. Besides, if I did not rejoin them soon, the probably would surely assert all my old rules. All that remained was to find the players. If they had managed to put on a performance in Rochester, as um, as Chessels, they might have made enough to pay for lodgings. So I checked at the first inn I came to. My friends were not there, but the host directed me to another inn, the what the Weedship. By the time I found the place, I was faint with hunger and fatigue, and despite the warmth of the evening, shivering in my wet clothing. As I stepped from the dark outdoors into the main room of the inn, the light of candles barely blinded me. The smell of roasting meat filled my nostrils. Supporting myself against the doorframe, I surveyed the room, hoping to see a familiar welcome face. To my painful disappointment, I recognized no one there, or nearly no one. As I turned to leave, I caught a thin figure that made me stop and stare. A fat-bellied man with an eye patch. Though he had his back to me, I was certain it was the same familiar-looking fellow I had seen weeks before with the Lord Pembroke's men. And again at the tavern in Leeds playing cards with Jimmy Russell. He was engaged in a game of cards now with three other men. Piles of coins on the table told me that there was a gambling involved. Apparently, the one-eyed man was not faring well, for there was not a single coin in front of him. As I watched, he pulled something from his wallet and dangled it before the others, evidently offering it as a wager in lieu of money. In light of the small chandelier that hung on the table, the object in his hand glittered in gold, and I gave a gasp of surprise, for even at a distance, I knew once that it was my mother's crucifix. So that was chapter 25. Bye, guys. See you later. See you later. See you later. See you. See you later. Bye, guys.